Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, November 8th, and we're dipping into the mailbag. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I've got Molly Pool Premium Analyst Joey Salitro with me in the studio. Joey, what's going on, man? Oh, not much. Ready to answer some questions. Yeah, these are some of my favorite episodes. You know, we, we put at the end that we want people to reach out on Twitter uh, and via email, industryfocus at fool.com. And every now and then when we get enough of those questions, either through those channels or through our YouTube channel, people comment there. And we have some stuff that we can't hit in the videos there, but we can do uh, kind of lumped into some of these larger mailbag questions. We love to do these episodes where we address some questions from these folks. So that's what we're going to be doing today. I'm going to kick things off with a question from Eric, and he asked this via our YouTube channel. He says, I'm a fool and I'm looking to increase my monthly income. How do I make that happen? Uh, now, now, Joey, when I think about this, there's kind of two different parts of it, right? What do you need the money for uh, will largely dictate how you go about making sure that that money is there. Exactly. Yeah. My main question for this would be, you know, are you looking to increase your monthly income in your portfolio or in your bank account because you're looking to pay extra bills? So, yeah, this is definitely uh, kind of a broad question, but we can kind of hit it on both sides. Yeah, I, th- I think for the folks that are looking for that income, maybe people a little bit closer to retirement or in retirement, they want some investments that are going to perform for them, give them a little bit of cash, maybe so they don't have to dip into their retirement accounts. Um, let's let's start with that side of the equation. There are some options for people that are looking for that. Yeah, if you're looking to do it for you know monthly dividend stocks, there's plenty out there that do that. You've got you know real estate investment trusts. There's a lot of energy companies that could pay you on a monthly basis. So that's when you'd basically just turn off the drip and have that cash roll in to where you can withdraw it. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of options on the investment side, and luckily we've got quite a bit on Fool.com that can kind of give you those uh, monthly dividend options. Yeah, and and I would say with that too. Monthly dividends are tempting for people that are looking for regular income because the idea is, you know, you get that dividend check every single month rather than have to wait for the quarterly cadence to come in, like you see with a lot of stocks, you get it on a monthly basis. It might be worth looking at stocks like the dividend aristocrats, like you mentioned, the REITs out there. Um, if you're looking for income, don't don't be wed to the idea of getting a check every month and have that limit the stocks that you're choosing from. Yeah, and you can also I mean, if you're willing to do the work, you can also find stocks that pay quarterly, but you can find ones that pay it in different months. So you're always getting your dividend each month, but from quarterly dividend payers. I will say, um, if you want just income and you're not in a position where you, you really need cash because you're retired, I would discourage people from solely looking at dividend stocks for producing income. Um, and the reason for that is you have to own a lot in dividend shares, uh, dividend paying shares, in order to generate a significant amount of money. And and just as an example, so say you want $200 in dividend income and you own Verizon. Well, you have to sink about $5,000 into that stock for that 4% yield to give you 200 bucks over the course of the year. So if you're looking to generate an extra couple hundred dollars, you're staking several thousand dollars and the value of that thousand is going to fluctuate based on how the, how the shares are trading. Yeah, and imagine if Verizon takes a 20% dip and then you're down $1,000, like, does that $200 in dividend income really help you at that point? Yeah, and, and so I worry sometimes that people get motivated by the dividend payout, which they assume to just kind of be there. They assume that yield is always going to hold, uh, and that's not always the case. Sometimes you run into hiccups. And so don't let chasing monthly income or dividend income in particular uh, have you stray from whatever your investment goals are. You know, if you're earlier on in your investing journey, you have a long runway. You can weather a lot of market volatility. 
you might be a little bit better off going towards some growth stocks. Absolutely. And that's, uh, I mean, growth is my way of life. Um, dividend stocks, I don't play with. Um, I always say, you know, if I buy a dividend stock, it's going to be a day where I start carrying caramels in my pockets to hand out to kids. <laughs> like, it's just not something I'm ready to do yet. And, but I understand a lot of people are in that situation, and later in life, I mean, that's kind of the way you have to go, dividends and bonds. Now, um, there are some other options out there for folks that are looking to uh, either make some extra money or have the appearance of some extra money coming in. And I want to touch on that, too, because I'm a little bit more of a fan of this approach. Um, I tend to think about finding an extra couple hundred dollars, $200 a month as something that can be done quite easily by looking at the money that's going out right now. So you look at your checking account, um, you look at your credit card bills, and I think you can just print them out and really circle, okay, here are my recurring expenses, here are my streaming uh, fees that I'm paying every month, here's my cable bill, here's my wireless bill. Those are the big ones right there. You know, if you own uh, HBO, Netflix and Hulu access, you're paying $350 a year. Chances are you don't need all three of those at the same time. You know, if you're able to rotate those the way that I know some of our coworkers like to, where it's, you know, Q1, we are a Netflix household, Q2, we are an HBO <laughs> household, and kind of have it roll that way, you can save yourself $150 right there. Um, so, so that's something I would really encourage people to consider. Um, and one of the big sources of savings that a lot of people don't realize is with your wireless plan, with your cable plan. If you've been a customer somewhere for a long time, that business is very happy that you've been a customer for a long time. They've probably been upping your rates. So go check, see what you're paying, and see what the competition might be able to offer you. Yeah, it's much easier to reduce who you're, sp- or who you're paying each month. Uh, that's a great way to find some cash. I did the same thing where when I moved up here, the cost of living significantly higher than in Central Florida. So, I mean, even looking at my T-Mobile bill was, I think it was 70 or 80 bucks a month. And I just jumped onto my in-laws plan to where it was down to $20 a month. So it's easier to just, you know, send them some cash on Venmo to cover that. And like you said, if you have a cable company, you can, you can always call them and negotiate your rate down. And I know one of the big things around here, luckily we don't pay commissions on trades anymore, but you can actually call, you know, if you have a mortgage, call your bank, say, hey, look, I've been a customer with you for a long time. Let's get me a rate adjusted down, especially since interest rates have come down quite a bit uh, over the years. I mean, there's a lot of things you can negotiate down. And our credit card companies and banks, you can easily pull your statements and see, hey, what am I charged for monthly? Um, I have a Chase card and it does that. It gives you a full breakdown of your monthly expenses and you can show the fixed category. You can say, okay, now how can I reduce these or which ones am I not using and eliminate entirely? I know before the no brokerage revolution that investing has experienced over the last couple of months, you were regularly on the phone with your broker just making sure, like, hey, come on, give me, give me a couple of free trades. I don't have to worry about this. I feel really bad for Jarvis over there at TD Ameritrade <laughs> in Central Florida. I would hit him up. As soon as I'd be down to like five free trades, I'd be like, hey, listen, they're, they're talking over here at X brokerage that – they would give me, you know, this much free commission, uh, commission-free trading, or they're looking to give me some cash just to transfer over a certain amount. Like, how how can we get mine down, or can I get some more free trades? And yeah, I, I'd say I haven't paid TD Ameritrade for years. So to see them go to zero commission, that's zero is my kind of price. That's it's hard to argue with that price. Uh, and and to your point on the wireless plans, uh, I was someone that was with Verizon for a long time. I just mentioned their their stalwart dividend status. Well, I was with them as a customer for a long time and wound up switching. And uh, I went from paying, I think it was like $60 a month, um, to the point where I'm paying $300 for the year. And so, you look at that and you're like, okay, well, that's 
300 $400 in savings like that. It's one-time switch. Those are the things that I'm a huge fan of because it requires one activity change, and then you're good to go. Yeah, and I was with uh, AT&T before that. And, I mean, I'm a huge fan of John Leisure over there at T-Mobile. So to see something, you know, you always know it's going to be a set price, unlimited data and all that. So not advertising for T-Mobile or anything like that, but you can always use a competitor as the threat. Like, hey, if you don't get my bill down, I'm going to go to this company and... I they mean, will act very quickly if you do that. Yeah, play nice at first. If not, just say, hey, all right, see you later. The the one other way that you can boost your monthly income, you know, we talked about uh, getting some income-producing investments. We talked about finding that money in your uh, spending as is right now. You can, of course, also do some side hustles, do some things to bring a little extra cash in. Oh, man, there's, there's just a plethora of opportunities out there. You can go from I mean, what I did for side income for years was I wrote for The Motley Fool, and it's almost like my side chick that I married. Um, so, I mean, you've got that, you've got Fiverr, you've got all these gig websites that you could do. You could deliver groceries for Instacart or Shipt. Um, there, there's Uber Eats, there's DoorDash. Like, There's just so many opportunities. If you have a car, if you don't have a car, you could be like the shopper in the store for them. That I think if you're looking to you know, supplement your income by getting another side gig, even Rover or Wag, you know, taking care of other people's dogs. Like, there's so many opportunities. And I feel bad if you Google it because you're going to have hundreds of websites pop up. But there's plenty of opportunities out there if you're looking to go that route. Yeah. And those are just the conventional kind of gig economy jobs, you know. But if you're someone who, uh, you know, if you're a copywriter, you know, or, or someone who has a background in a creative field, design, you know, you're a video editor, whatever, um, chances are you can do stuff outside of your main job and make a little extra money with the skills you already have. You know, you don't need to go and turn your car into an uber friendly version of a vehicle. You know, you can just take a lot of your marketable skills and do a little side work with them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you have skills and technology, there's always the opportunities. Like I mentioned, Fiverr was one of them that you could do some design work. And even I have some friends that like to go to like the antiques road shows and have their Etsy shops. So, I mean, you could always turn your hobby into a good money-making venture. All right. Our second question, this one comes in from Jay. I think he got a direct response uh, from Jason Moser on this one, but I wanted to talk about it because I think it's a common question that a lot of tend, a lot of people tend to ask when they're starting out investing. Uh, Jay writes in, love your podcasts, never miss market foolery, Motley Fool Money, or the financials industry focus on Mondays. What about tech, Jay? Come on, man. <laughs> the other day on Industry Focus, Matt and Jason were talking about the zero dollar commissions, and Matt said something to the effect of, I could buy one share of Apple now without having to pay the commission. I also hear on various podcasts that, quote, I picked up a couple shares of X stock. It made me wonder, when the analysts at TMF buy stock in a company, how many shares do they typically buy? Or maybe you look at the total dollar amount invested and not the number of shares. Um, I think that Jay started to arrive at our answer a little bit uh, as he asked this one. Yeah, this is very important. Um, I know a lot of people think about how many shares they own as you know the, their ownership in a company, but I always look at it as almost like a percentage of the market cap. So I don't care if I'm buying you know one share of Berkshire A, like that's three hundred thousand dollars, or buying three hundred thousand shares of a one dollar stock. You always want to look at it as the dollar amount invested and what you think that that stock could return over time, because whether it's $10,000 invested in, you know, getting one share for that or 10,000 shares of a $1 stock, like if it returns 100%, you're still doubling your money. I think the important thing to think about this too is what are you working with 
with your account. You know, there's a big difference in how you're going to invest if you have two thousand dollars in your brokerage account versus a hundred thousand dollars in your brokerage account. Yeah, and and this is where it also comes into play where we mean about commissions. Where if you only had five hundred dollars in your account and you were paying a seven dollar commission, you know that's that's a significant hit that you're taking just on placing that trade. But what they mean is now if you can buy two shares of Apple uh, for five hundred dollars and not pay that seven dollars, where you're more apt to not wait for cash to build up in your account to place that trade because it's you know commissions are out of the question now. Yeah, I think the guidance that the fool had given in some of our past books and podcasts and things like that when it was $7 a trade kind of across the board was you don't want your fees taking up more than 1 or 2% of the overall amount you're investing. And so if you're paying $7 for commissions, you probably want to be investing at least 700 bucks when you do make those purchases. The calculus on this has totally changed since then. Yeah, and that's what, I mean, Robinhood kind of spearheaded that to where they made it much easier for people to start accounts with 100, 200 bucks that wanted to, you know, get their feet wet. But now all these big platforms doing it. And I, I just see that as this is a way that everyone can start investing easier. And now with a lot of these platforms allowing for fractional shares, that makes it even easier to own something like Amazon where you might not have 1700 1800 bucks to buy a share but now if you've got 200 and you want to buy you know a piece of Amazon now you can yeah and that's huge now not every brokerage account is allowing for fractional shares and there are some that offer free trades that don't offer fractional shares, some that offer fractional shares that you have to pay for your trades. So <laughs> we're still kind of figuring out this landscape um, a little bit. I think to, to put some numbers to it so that folks kind of understand how to think about the overall portfolio, um, this is at least how I was thinking about it when I got started. So say you have $10,000. If you're buying $1,000 of one stock, that means 10% of the portfolio is whatever is happening with that stock. You know, so if that stock's doubling, great. That's now going to be a much larger chunk of your portfolio. But um, with that size and where commissions are now, if you're still in a position where you're paying commissions, um, I think that you can buy stocks in about $500 bunches, $600 bunches, and be okay. Um, with that level, you're not committing a huge chunk of the portfolio to any one stock, and you're not committing it to any one position. So I think something that we lose sight of a lot when we talk about diversification is you not only have the diversification of the things you own, you know, owning maybe a an energy company and a bank, we'll say, but you also have the diversification of when you decided to buy those share those shares. And so if you commit to, okay, we're gonna buy this several times, we're gonna build the whole position out over three purchases, starting out with five hundred dollars, six hundred dollars gives you the room with a portfolio that size to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where, I mean, we always preach about scaling into positions. So yeah, to not have to have the commissions on each of those trades, you can easier scale. And yeah, so as you build that, say you buy it in three different uh, splurts to get that position, then yeah, you're not paying the three different commissions to do it. So yeah, you're spot on with that. I think, you know, for some folks that don't have access to the fractional shares and they're looking at a stock like Amazon, at some point, you just got to bite the bullet and say, "I'm going I'm to save up the $1,800 that I need to buy one share of this company." Um, hopefully, you do that, and if you're working with a small portfolio, realize that that's going to drive a very large portion of the portfolio's returns. So you got that one share. Maybe it's time to build out positions in other stocks until you save up more, so you can buy a second one. Exactly. I always focus on buying a company that I think will return a specific amount over a specific period of time. I know we've talked about it before, but I'm looking 
10x over 10 years. So if it's a $1,000 stock, I'm, I'm just making sure, okay, as long as that 1,000 can go to 10,000, then that's my focus. I don't care how many I'm getting or, or anything like that. So yeah, if you think Amazon's going to go up 10x over the next 10 years, which is a tall order. It's a tall order. <laughs> if you put 200 bucks into it, hey, that's, that's a fantastic return. Yeah. And, and to bring it back to what you're talking about before with market cap, that 1,000 to 10,000, for example, what we're really saying is, okay, this company's worth a trillion dollars. Could it become a $10 trillion company? Yes. We're ultimately looking at the size of the market, the market that they operate in, and how all of that comes together for the, the broader growth story, not just the share price movements. Exactly. Yes. Cool. All right. Our last set of questions, kind of related, uh, is kind of career advice oriented, which is kind of fun. So uh, we had Craig write in and he said, This is Craig. I am 24. I've been investing since I was 18, and I want to get into the world of finance and become an analyst at some point. I've applied for TMF internships and would love advice on how to make the jump into a career at investing slash at the fool. And he says he's taken some classes in accounting and finance, and he has a YouTube channel where he talks about stocks and investing. And then similarly, we got a question from Max. Uh, Max says, I've been one of the dozens of listeners for about two years and been a member of the Stock Advisor Service for a year now. Want to know what qualifications you look for with hiring new employees and contributors. And I mean, Joey, I think you're like one of the perfect people to have on for this conversation because you made that jump. You you were interested in investing, wrote for us, and then went from writing for us to being an in-house analyst. Yeah, so I was in Craig's situation where you know I, I was at UCF at the time, and I was very interested in becoming an analyst. So we had the blog network, which is uh, no longer standing, but I would just basically craft articles how I would see other Motley Fool analysts do it. So Craig, if you kind of went on and Hold, you know, I'm sure you have favorite writers at the Fool, like I did. Um, just try crafting your own articles, just like that. And I mean, we have freelance positions here that uh, you can apply to. So my path was more. I followed the Fool very closely. I did something called the Campus Challenge that was run back in 2013, where we would craft articles, and it slowly got syndicated to the site. So I slowly made some side income doing that. And then I worked for uh, the U.S. Consumer Goods team as a contractor. And then I worked for the Canadian division as a contractor. So we have those freelance positions where if you showcase your work, whether it's your own blog or on our message boards to show what you can do and then slowly apply to those positions, uh, that that was kind of my path. And then I applied to probably 25, 30 positions uh, in-house, which is kind of like the ongoing joke with uh, <laughs> <laughs> me and the people team here. Like It's almost like a coming home where I'd been applying for so long and they'd always see my name on these applications to where it's like, oh, hey, here's Joey again. <laughs> yeah. And then the fit was finally right. Yeah. The fit was finally right. And uh, so, yeah, that's where to both of you and especially even to Max, where you're saying, you know, is there a specific path? Or if you're heading to the energy sector, could you make the jump to this? I mean, if you have the smarts to know or to get your degree in energy, if you just learn how to break down even energy companies, since that's where your your expertise kind of lies and, you know, what drives energy stocks, I mean, you could easily find your mix into here. I mean, there's fools from all different backgrounds here to where, I mean, we've got a geologist upstairs. So it doesn't really matter what your background's in. If you have a passion for investing, finance, podcasts, whatever you want to do um, here at The Fool, I mean, I would encourage you to apply and apply often. Yeah, I think to highlight the diversity that we have with our hiring, you, know, you look at our editorial department and some of our recent hires, uh, one of them was someone who 
went to law school, passed the bar, decided he didn't want to be a lawyer. That's Nick Seipel, host of the Energy Show. Uh, and then uh, Kirsten, who you mentioned, geologist who was monitoring fracking, realized that she was really interested in investing and then came over to The Fool uh, and is somewhat self-taught in investing uh, and picking up more in her time here. So there's no kind of cookie cutter for how people get here. But I think um, what you mentioned with writing for the site and actually what Craig wrote in and mentioned with his YouTube channel, great example of one of the things that I look for as a hiring manager here, where you know it's great to go into an interview and say, you know, I love investing. I'm so into it. Um, you know, I manage stocks on my own, all that kind of stuff. But if you can go and say, hey, I'm really into investing. By the way, I've been putting out content on this YouTube channel, or I run a really active Twitter account that follows the market, or I've been running a blog and I've been putting all my thoughts there for like the last year and a half. That really hammers that point home. That's the kind of thing that I look for when I'm hiring folks. And frankly, that's that's what got me my job here. Uh, <laughs> that's so um, I was someone who was a finance major, uh, journalism minor, had worked at some of the kind of like conventional uh, big F finance firms and really didn't like it uh, and applied for an editorial position here trying to combine what I had some background in. And my hiring manager told me straight up, my first boss, he said, you know, we, we liked a lot of the stuff in your resume, but what really sold us was in your free time, you were running this blog. And that showed that you had a passion for this and an interest for this. It's a hard thing to fake. And that's, I was actually going to make that, that same point. It, it was probably your passion that showed. So you're saying where you have this YouTube channel, you have a blog that you like to do. And if that's the kind of line of work that you want to go into, it shows if that's what you do in your spare time and you love doing it, then... The Molly Fool knows that if we hire you into this position, you're going to enjoy every single day of doing it. So uh, I'd say keep doing that and use that on your resume. 100%. And the, the thing I'll add to that, it kind of gets into that intellectual curiosity thing too, is uh, I'll let you into the, the hiring process a little bit. And, and what I ask people is kind of an insider tip. Um, but every every interview I'm in, I will ask more or less the same question. And it's, you know, what is something that you've taught yourself how to do and how did you do it? And it's not a trick question. I'm not trying to see if you're like only at your desk ever at work, you know, always in spreadsheets. Uh, what I want to do is just get a sense of, you know, what's the thing that you love, that you love so much that you decided to pick it up as an adult? Uh, and and how did you go about the process of doing that thing? Um, you know, it could be that you learned how to refurbish furniture. You know, it could be that you, uh, you know, wanted to learn how to build a website and you're a financial analyst. But all those things get at the idea that there's a hunger and an intellectual curiosity that you are going to chase. And, and I think that that's one of the biggest things that we look for when we hire people. Yeah, I, w- I would definitely, you know, echo that same thing that, yeah, we're looking for people that are passionate and, you know, whether you have a background or a degree in one thing, if your passion lies in finance or stock picking or, you know, social media management, I mean, I'm going through all of our job postings here, like there's a wide range. So if there's something you're passionate about, then I'd say apply and explain. And uh, in case you want to know where you can apply and explain, go over to careers.fool.com. You can catch all of our current openings. As Joey mentioned, there are Dozens, just like our listeners, there are dozens of openings. Uh, so I guess everybody gets a job. But uh, <laughs> um, I think that's going to do it for this mailbag episode. Joey, thanks so much for hopping on. Thank you. All right, listeners, that's it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email over at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at MF Industry Focus. If you want more, subscribe on iTunes or catch videos from the podcast and tons of other video extras over on YouTube. 
As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass today. For Joey Salitro, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.